If you join me in Bible study this morning, please open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 56. Last week we finished with verse 9. All you beasts of the field come to devour all you beasts in the forest. Talking about how before Messiah comes, before Israel is ready to accept her Messiah, she was going to be attacked by outside enemies and taken into captivity. Why? Verses 10 through 12 explain why. How could Israel, the beloved of God, fall so short that they would end up going into captivity in the world when God told us in no uncertain terms in Deuteronomy 28 how to be blessed and how to get taken into captivity. And in Deuteronomy 30, Moses pleads with us. I said before you today, life and death. And then does he say, pick something? He says, choose life. So how did Israel fall so short of God's desired goal? It starts in verse 10. Here we go. I'm going to read 10 through 12, and then we're going to comment on it. His watchmen are blind. What were the watchmen of Israel? Prophets, priests, and kings. Those are three anointed offices. You had to be anointed to be a prophet, to be a priest, or to be a king. The word Messiah, Mashiach in Hebrew, means the anointed one. So each prophet, each priest, each king was supposed to be leading the people to God, carrying out a portion of Messiah's duties, responsibilities, and authorities. And yet it says his watchmen are blind. What are watchmen supposed to do according to Ezekiel? Warn the people. Warn the people before disaster strikes so they have a chance to repent and avoid the disaster. But what if the watchmen are blind? Then they don't see anything coming because they're not looking for it. Because they don't see the danger approaching, they don't warn the people. The people don't have a chance to repent and change their conduct because they're being told all the time that God loves you and you're right in God's eyes and God's just waiting to, you, to accept you into his eternal kingdom. When all the time they're so far from God that the message needs to be repent and come back to God. Now, of course, there were some good prophets like Isaiah, like Ezekiel, like Jeremiah. But for every good prophet, how many bad prophets were there? Hundreds, right? Hundreds. So you've got one voice over here saying repent. The rest of them going, oh, don't listen to him. You're fine. You're fine. So his watchmen are blind. They are all ignorant. What's the difference between ignorance and stupid? They were choosing to be dumb, you said? One leads to the other. One leads to the other. Did they have a lack of knowledge? They had a lack of knowledge, though. Let's go to Hosea chapter 4. The problem was their lack of knowledge was deliberate. 
If you've ever been to law school, one of the first things they teach you is deliberate ignorance is considered knowledge in the eyes of the law. They get that from scripture. In Hosea 4, start in verse 1, Hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel, for the Lord brings a charge against the inhabitants of the land, and here it is. There is no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. Now come down to verse 6 where he explains why there's no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. He says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. What does the word rejected mean? Consciously made a choice. I don't want to know. Because if I know, then I have to do something about it, don't I? So I pretend not to know so I can go blindly about my sinful life thinking all is well. He says, I also reject you from being priests for me because you have forgotten the law of your God. I also will forget your children. So he lays clearly the charge at the feet of the priests. One of those shepherds of Israel who are supposed to be what? Teaching the people. They're supposed to be teaching the people the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God. So why have they stopped teaching it? Go to... Is it Micah or Malachi? Let's see. It starts with an M. It's Micah chapter 3, verse 11. Her heads judge for a bribe. Her priests teach for pay. No longer were they teaching the scriptures to the people out of the kindness of their heart, out of love for their brothers. But it was, if you want to know what the Lord says... It's going to cost you. You got to put gold in my pocket. Go back to Isaiah chapter 56 verse 10. His watchmen are blind. They're all ignorant. But now we know why they're ignorant. Because they choose to reject knowledge. They are all dumb dogs. Dumb not meaning stupid. Meaning unable to speak. Because it says they cannot bark. Why do people like to keep dogs around? To alert them to danger, right? To bark when there's danger. But if the dogs can't bark, they can't alert you to danger. Sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber. Did God tell us to sleep or to watch? Let's think of one passage where God says to watch. How about... How about 1 Thessalonians 5? My thought exactly. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. You may have noticed lately, I'm, I'm getting more and more emphatic. <laughs> more and more to the point. Because time's running out. Chapter 5, verse 1, but concerning the times and the seasons which stand for the feasts and the festivals, the appointed times of our Lord, which teach the first and second coming of the Lord. How many preachers do you hear say, we have no idea what's coming? Well, if you ignore Leviticus chapter 23, 
it's a little harder to see what's coming. But what do the fall feasts teach us but the second coming of the Lord? Brother, you have no need that I should write to you for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. Labor pains are used as a sign of the tribulation period, a symbol for it in the Old Testament as well as the New. But it says, but you, brethren, are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief, which means what? You who are watching, you who understand the prophecies, you who understand the appointed times of the Lord should not be caught unawares. How many of you think the rapture is just around the corner? It is. If we're watching, we can see it. You know what? I've been encouraged lately because a lot of atheists are starting to see it. They didn't even believe the Bible, and they can see it. Verse 5, you're all sons of light and sons of the day. We're not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. Verse 9, here's why. 4, because God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Yeshua the Messiah. Too many of my messianic brethren are preaching from the pulpits that there is no pre-tribulation rapture because the children of God deserve to go through the tribulation and experience God's wrath. Well, that may be their opinion, but what does the Bible say? It says, for God did not appoint us to wrath, but to attain salvation through our Lord Yeshua the Messiah. If he did not appoint us to wrath, do you want to choose to experience it just to see if it's a little bit fun? I assure you it's not fun. Let's go back to Isaiah 56. It's not that sleeping at night is a bad thing, but these dumb dogs are sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber all day long. I heard somebody go to meeting. Forgive me. The word wrath in those scriptures there in First Thessalonians, is that the word za'am? Uh, no, because that's in Greek, and za'am is a Hebrew word. It would be the same as what we would use for the tribulation. It means the same thing as Zom. Yep. Verse 11, yes, they are greedy dogs. Why do they mean greedy? They like money. Besides that, what do they like? Power, authority. When they want people to bow down and kiss their rings. You ever see that on a, even like a TV show like Blue Buds where the chief gets down and kisses the ring of the... Catholic official that comes in don't you look at that and go that's not scriptural they're greedy dogs which never have enough what does the scripture say we should be content wherever we are be content with what we have when we cannot be content with what we have but we must have more we must have more we have a spiritual problem and they are shepherds who cannot understand. The Bible talks a lot about shepherds. In fact, those of you who know me know we're going to go to Ezekiel 34 shortly, but not quite yet. And they're shepherds who cannot understand. Can't understand what? The right way to go. 
the path on which to lead the sheep. What did Messiah say in Matthew 7? Turn to Matthew 7. There's two roads. There are two ways. And he's talking about people who are trying to get to heaven, to eternal life, to the messianic kingdom, to the new Jerusalem. There are two ways that believers try and go. The unbelievers, they're not even trying to find a way. But in verse 13 of Matthew 7, it says, Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. And verse 15 is the answer of why. Beware of false prophets, false teachers. That's exactly what Isaiah is telling us back in chapter 56. Watch who your shepherd is. Are they leading you on the broad path to destruction or the narrow path to life? What does Mark 7 or Matthew chapter 7 tell us we should look for? Their fruits, their works. How are they living? Are they following God's commandments or aren't they? If they're not, what are they teaching you? What did Messiah say about the scribes and Pharisees? They go from heaven to earth to find a proselyte and then make them what? Twice the son of hell as you are. Hmm. Verse 11 of Isaiah 56. Yes, they're greedy dogs which never have enough. They're shepherds who cannot understand. They all look to their own way. What way should they be looking to go? God's way. When you look to go your own way, I will figure out myself how to live my life. God can't tell me what to do. You're on the wrong road. Everyone for his own gain. There was Malachi. From his own territory. Come one says, I will bring wine. What's wine a picture of? Joy. The joy of the Lord. It represents the messianic kingdom. The season of our joy. Do they really have wine? They really do not. They have gall. We will fill ourselves with intoxicating drink. Tomorrow will be as today and much more abundant. Another way to put that as the scripture says is eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we shall die. Little do they realize, yes they will. Ezekiel 34 God tries many different times to get us to differentiate between a true teacher and a false teacher. Ezekiel 34 about the prophets, priests, and kings of Israel that are leading Israel astray. Were there some good kings in Israel? A few. Were there lots of bad kings? Lots of bad kings. Ezekiel 34.1, are we there? And the word of the Lord came to me saying, what's that word saying? It's a quote. How can the word of the Lord speak? John 1.1, 1, 1, this is our Messiah Yeshua, isn't it? Word came to me saying, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Same as Isaiah. Which comes first, Isaiah or Ezekiel? Isaiah. 
So Ezekiel is trying to amplify what Isaiah said. Prophesy and say to them, to the shepherds, not to the people. Thus says the Lord God to the shepherds. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves. What did Messiah say to Peter over and over? If you love me, feed my sheep. Well, the shepherds of Israel here are not feeding the sheep. They're feeding themselves, not the sheep. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? You eat the fat, meaning the best of the sheep, and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fatlings, but you do not feed the flock. The weak you have not strengthened, nor have you healed those who were sick, nor bound up the broken, nor brought back what was driven away, nor sought what was lost. But with force and cruelty you have ruled them. Did God put people in positions of authority to rule over and to mistreat his people? The answer is no. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the beasts of the field when they were scattered. What's verse 5 about? Captivity. So right here God says, what's the reason for the captivity? Because the shepherds led them astray. My sheep wandered through all the mountains and on every hill. What are mountains and hills in prophecy? Kingdoms. Where were God's people scattered to? All over the world. Yes, my flock was scattered over the whole face of the earth and no one was seeking or searching for them. How much of an effort has the church made over the last 2,000 years to bring salvation to the children of Israel? More like a wedge. Who was responsible for the pogroms? It was the church. For the Holocaust, what did the German Nazi soldiers have on their belt buckles? In God's service. What did they put in the gas chambers? You kill Christ, so we kill you. So they did all this to the Jewish people, saying we're doing it in the name of our Messiah, our loving God. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Does that sound like a suggestion? As I live, says the Lord God, surely because my flock became a prey, and my flock became food for every beast of the field, because there was no shepherd, nor did my shepherds search for my flock. But the shepherds fed themselves and did not feed my flock. Therefore, shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I require my flock at their hand. I'll cause them to cease feeding the sheep, and the shepherds shall feed themselves no more. Did God take away the prophets, the priests, and the kings from Israel? He certainly did. In the book of Matthew, did he take their authority and give it to the apostles? Yes, he did. For I will deliver my flock from their mouths, that they may no longer be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, Indeed, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. What does he say in the book of John? He's the shepherd who came to look for his sheep. Mm -hmm. As a shepherd seeks out his flock in the days coming among his scattered sheep, so I will seek out my sheep and deliver them from all the places where they were scattered on a cloudy and dark day. I'll bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries. 
and I will bring them to their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, in the valleys and all the inhabited places of the country. Will Messiah regather the children of Israel and bring us all back to the land when he comes? Yes, he will. Did he give us an indication of that in his first coming? Yes, read on, verse 14. I'll feed them in good pasture, and their fold shall be on the high mountains of Israel. There they shall lie down in a good fold and feed in the rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock, and I will make them lie down, says the Lord God. I will seek what was lost and bring back what was driven away, bind up the broken and strengthen what was sick. But I will destroy the fat and the strong and feed them in judgment. Let's go to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. He told us in Ezekiel 34 about the bad shepherds. What does he say of himself in John chapter 10 verse 11? I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Think back to Ezekiel 34. They killed the sheep. The shepherds did. Messiah says, instead of their dying for me, I die for them. Verse 14, I'm the good shepherd and I know my sheep and am known by my own. Just write down in your notes, 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 to 6. You know what it says. How do we know that we know him? As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Another sheep I have which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring. That's the Gentiles being grafted in, like Romans 11 says. And they will hear my voice and there will be how many flocks? One, one flock and one shepherd. Instead of going many ways, they'll go one way. And that's the Lord's way. Okay, back to chapter 57, verse 1 of Isaiah. Chapter 57 continues the end of chapter 56. About why the children of Israel have gone astray. How the prophets, priests, and kings failed to lead them in the ways of righteousness. It's because of the bad shepherds that we read in verse 1, the righteous perishes. That is, righteousness perishes out of the land because there's no one to teach the people, no one to lead the people, no one to guide them in the ways of the Lord. And no man takes it to heart. That is, nobody even notices that righteousness is perishing from the land. Merciful men are taken away while no one considers that the righteous is taken away from evil. That verse 1 is more important than we give it credit for sometimes. It is that God allows the righteous to be taken out of the way before he brings his wrath upon the unrighteous. That God does not pour out his wrath on his children. Keep a finger here and go back to Genesis chapter 19. Let 
Messiah himself said in describing the day of the Lord as remember the days of Lot. Genesis 19 verse 22. The angels are telling Lot, hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. That is, the angels could not call down fire from heaven and destroy Sodom and Gomorrah while the righteous were still in it. That's Genesis 19, verse 22. Back up to chapter 18. And I want you to see a conversation between Abraham and the Lord. Verse 23. And Abraham came near and said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? So the Lord said, if I find and sought in 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. But what's the point? Will God pour out his wrath? upon the righteous with the unrighteous? The answer is no. God forbid. The Lord also said, think back to the days of Noah. Go back to the book of Genesis earlier. Chapter 7. Chapter 7, where we were taught as children, God took two of every animal onto the ark. That's nice, but that's not what it says. Genesis 7, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. You shall take with you seven each of every clean animal, a male and his female, that is seven pairs, the Hebrew says, Sheva, Sheva, Ishva, Ishto. Seven pairs of the clean animals. How many Jews are there in the world now at the time this is written? None. Animals being clean or unclean has nothing to do with whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. Has nothing to do with Exodus chapter 20 and the Ten Commandments. They've been clean or unclean from creation. Verse 4, for after seven more days I will cause it to rain on the earth forty days and forty nights. I'll destroy from the face of the earth all living things that I have made. So before God would pour out his wrath and destroy all living things on the earth, what did Noah and his family have to do? They had to get on the ark to be delivered to safety because God would not pour out his wrath upon his children. You can probably see through my veiled attempt. Okay. Will God take us through the tribulation period? No. But let's go on. Chapter 57, Isaiah, verse 2. He, 
shall enter into peace. That's nice. Who's he? The righteous one. He shall enter into peace. They shall rest in their beds, each one walking in his uprightness. So while the unrighteous, the wicked, go through the wrath of God, what about the righteous ones? They enter into peace. They enter into rest. What kind of rest? Hebrews chapter 4. The Sabbath rest that God has promised. The Sabbatismas of Hebrews chapter 4. So the righteous will not suffer during God's outpouring of wrath. Go to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, verse 36. John 3.36 tells us who will suffer the wrath of God and who will not. It says, he who believes in the Son, that's our Messiah Yeshua, has everlasting life. He who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So who is the wrath of God for, the believer or the non-believer? The non-believer. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Paul tells us upon whom the wrath of God will be revealed. Romans 1, 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The word truth refers to what? The Torah, Psalm 119, verse 142. Another term for unrighteousness is lawlessness. You get the idea who the wrath of God is poured out upon, those who reject his commandments, statutes, and judgments. Does that mean we're saved by keeping commandments? No, it means if we're saved by faith, we will naturally be led into keeping God's commandments. We'll want to do it. Romans 2, 5 to 11. Romans 2, verses 5 to 11. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart. What does impenitent mean? Not repenting. You are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. What is that day of wrath called? Day of the Lord, the tribulation period. Who has stored up wrath for themselves for the tribulation period? Those with the hardness and impenitent hearts. Verse 6, who will render to each one according to his deeds. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. So who gets eternal life? Those who yield themselves to God's mercy and obedience out of love. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, that is, those who refuse to keep God's commandments because they prefer earthly pleasures, but obey unrighteousness, that's lawlessness, 
indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. So does Paul tell us that if we want to avoid the wrath of God, we need to come to God by faith and love and walk in his ways? Romans 5, 9. Of course. Uh, uh, Romans 2 13, I think it is. Let's see. Uh, it, for, it is not the hearers of Torah who are righteous before God, but it is the doers of Torah who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the Torah do by nature the things of the Torah, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the Torah. They show that the work of the Torah is written in their hearts. I don't, by nature, do the Torah. I don't. If you remember, over the last few weeks, we've had some disagreements over this scripture. There are two different points of view that I have heard expressed. Mine was, is talking about the Gentiles who did not grow up with the Torah. Once they get saved, the Torah is written on their hearts and they obey it even though they didn't learn it as children. Other people thought, no, it means that the Gentiles who just naturally are obedient to the commandments of God. They grow up in a pagan world, but they renounce idolatry, and they grasp the true and living God, much like um, Abraham did. So those are the two possible points of view on that. On to Romans chapter 5, verse 9. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood... We shall be saved from wrath through him. So those that have been saved by faith in Messiah, are we destined to wrath? We are not. We shall be saved from the wrath. That's not all that the Bible has to say about this. So let's go on to Colossians chapter 3. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Colossians 3, 6. Verse 6 begins with because, so we have to back up to 5. Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, colon, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. So what is Paul saying? The wrath comes upon the sons of disobedience, therefore don't be one of the children of disobedience. Is that what he's saying? Yeah. Put away these things. First Thessalonians chapter 1. 
verses 9 to 10. By the way, I must apologize. I looked very hard to find a verse that said wrath comes upon the children of God, but I couldn't find it. All I found were verses like this. First, what's that? What book are we in? First Thessalonians. I could have said the Bible, but then she would have given me that disapproving look. First Thessalonians 1, verses 9 and 10. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Yeshua, who delivers us from the wrath to come. It doesn't say he keeps us through it, right? It says he delivers us from it. And that's quite a different thing. So let's stay in 1 Thessalonians. Go to chapter 5. Verse 9. I know some of you will say, we were there already. Yes, but we're back again. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Yeshua the Messiah who died for us. That whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. So what's he talking about here? We're not appointed to wrath, but to what? The rapture and the resurrection. That's exactly what he means, right? By whether we wake or sleep. It means whether we remain alive till his coming back, or if we have preceded the rapture, resurrection, and death, we will go to be with the Lord. So there's just no getting around these verses. God did not appoint us to wrath, but to be taken in the rapture and resurrection to eternal home. Revelation 6. We all know Revelation is the last book of the Bible. And we know it was the last book of the Bible that was written. Revelation 6, verses 15 to 17. In Revelation 6, we're in the first three and a half years of the tribulation period. I hear a lot of prophecy teachers say it's nice and peaceful and calm in that first three and a half years. Mm -hmm. Bible says a quarter of mankind dies in that first three and a half years. And here we read in verses 15 to 17. Oh, let's back up to verse 12. I looked and when he opened the sixth seal and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair and the moon became like blood. And the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it's shaken by a mighty wind. Does that sound like fun? No. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it's rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. Does that sound like nuclear weapons falling? It is. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and the rocks of the mountains. 
It's not a holiday, is it? It's a day of terror. And said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come and who is able to stand? I had a preacher recently tell me that, you know, God is love. It's true, it says that in the Bible, God is love and he demonstrated his love by sending his only begotten son. When you say, tell me about how Saul was sent to destroy the Amalekites, every man, woman, and child, and every beast. In, in Exodus chapter 3, God did not say, I am that I am, as I will be whom I will be. To God's children, God is a loving God. But if you are a God-rejecting, pagan idolater, living in sexual immorality, God's wrath is awful. Revelation 11, verse 18. I cannot tell you, reading through these scriptures, how much I don't want to be here during the pouring out of God's wrath. Verse 18. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. And the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Do you see two attitudes? One towards the prophets and the saints and the other to the ungodly. Revelation 14 verses 9 to 11. In Revelation 14 we're in the second half of the tribulation period. Then a third angel followed him, verse 9, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength in the cup of his indignation, being poured out to those who worship the beast and take his mark. He should be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. And then there's verse 12. Here's the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Yeshua. Are they living through the wrath of God? First, no, Revelation 19 next. Revelation 19. Verse 15. This is Messiah returning for Armageddon. Out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. The answer to my question in Revelation 14, these saints, are they living through the wrath of God? The answer is yes. But why? 
They were not saved when the rapture and the resurrection came. So they got saved too late. So what portion of them will die? A great portion of them will die. But it's because they waited until after the rapture and the resurrection to give their lives to the Lord. We won't do that, will we? Just go, uh uh-uh. Go back to Isaiah 57, we're up to verse 3. Before I go on. After considering all that. Go after back, considering go back, all that. Go back and look at verse 1 again. Go back and look at verse 1 of? 57. Chapter 57, verse 1, okay? Yeah. And, and is this the response then of the people to, um, that are left on the earth when the rapture occurs? That they, no man takes it to heart and no one considers? Yeah, the righteous are taken in the rapture and the resurrection. And, and, and the rest of them, instead of saying, boy, we better go down and get saved. They just say, oh, we can now go party. Mm-hmm. All these people that kept telling us to repent, they're now gone. <laughs> There's no doubt alien invasion will be part of the explanation. They are already trying to push the narrative. Yeah. When the Vatican buys a, an observatory in the New Mexico area called Lucifer, <laughs> You know there's <clears throat> something they're looking for. But how many movies have there been in the last 40 years about aliens coming and invading Independence Day, etc.? Of course, my favorite of those movies is Spaced Invaders. I'm sure you guys have seen it. There's a group of spacemen who get separated from their attack armada and come to Earth by mistake on Halloween as the radio station is broadcasting the War of the Worlds. So they come down to invade the Earth to destroy it, and they're about the size of a typical third grader, and everybody assumes they're just kids in costumes. (laughs) It's hilarious. Okay, I'm sorry, I digress. But if you've never seen it, oftentimes you can see it for free on YouTube. It's hilarious. Spaced with a D, Invaders. Spaced invaders. Verse 3. But come here, you sons of the sorceress. Sorceress. That makes us think of something different than what the Hebrew word is. What's the Hebrew word there? It's astrologers. How many people read your horoscope every morning in the newspaper? God says, don't you do that. Where do we find out the future? In the word of God. So let's take a look. Why do I call that astrologers? Let's go to Leviticus 19.26. Leviticus 19.26. You shall not eat anything with the blood, nor shall you practice divination or soothsaying. That word soothsaying is the same word translated in Isaiah 57 as sorceress. Soothsaying is to try and predict the future through astrology. In the King James Version, they, they read it a little different. 
Um, they use the word observe. Mm -hmm. Observe. But it's talking about observing the stars and making predictions about mankind's future based upon it. So back to verse 3, because there's much more in it than just the astrology, soothsaying, sorceress types. It says, come here, you sons of the sorceress, you offspring of the adulterer and the harlot. Harlot, they're referring to the idolaters. So when God says, come here, you sons of these peoples, is that to love them and pamper them and give them a new home? It's for woodshed. It's for judgment. You know it is. Yeah. So verse 4. Whom do you ridicule? They're ridiculing God. Against whom do you make a wide mouth and stick out the tongue? All children, demonstrate that please. You ever do that as kids? Never do that on film. Okay, sorry. Okay. But that's what it's talking about. They are mocking God to God's face. Are you not the children of transgression, offspring of falsehood? So how dare you ridicule the prophets of God, the righteous ones, the saints, and God himself? And yet people do. I'm betting every one of you has tried to share the gospel with somebody who just mocked you. How stupid you are. I talk to a lot of pastors whose response is, you're trying to be saved by works. And I explain no, and Messiah said, if you love me, keep, your command, keep my commandments. Say, but your position is that we have to break God's commandments. Yes, that's right. That shows our faith. So to please God, we must break his commandments. Does that make any sense to any of you? Where does it say that? Nowhere. It's in doctrine, not in Bible. Yep, they say if you keep Shabbat, it's because you don't have faith enough to believe that God will save you if you continue walking in sins. Got a question down there, Mary? Wait. He made me think about Noah and uh, how he got caught up in a way. And you made me think about uh, Sodom and Gabor and uh, how uh, my, mind, my mind went blank. Lot. Yes, Lot. Yeah. And his family got saved. And they weren't doing works. Even though Noah was working on an ark, they weren't doing works. They were getting laughed at, ridiculed, put down. The scriptures and say he was a preacher of righteousness. Yeah, he, he was uh, literally struggling through the whole thing. And we forget that when we talk about Noah and Lot. They were struggling through that. Didn't the angels have to drag Lot and his family out? Kind of like... Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Alrighty, back to Isaiah 57. We're up to verse 5. Oh my. Still talking about the sons of the disobedient. Verse 5 says, Inflaming yourselves with gods under every green tree. 
What was the big draw to pagan idolatry? Was the sexual immorality. The pagan priestesses were prostitutes. So inflaming yourselves talks about the sexual immorality that was taking place as the people were worshiping the gods under every green tree that is under the evergreens. Slaying the children in the valleys. What did they do at the feast of Ishtar, who became, became, became known as Easter? They would kill the children that were born from the pagan prostitutes and roll eggs in the blood to color them. Slaying the children in the valleys under the clefts of the rocks. What does the Bible say about idolatry? Let's go back to Deuteronomy 12. Deuteronomy 12. Does God say, worship me like they worship their gods? No. Deuteronomy chapter 12. We'll do the short version. Verse 2. I'm not sure I can do the short version. <laughs> you shall utterly destroy. What does utterly destroy mean? Completely and totally, right? Leave nothing left of it. All the places where the nations which you shall dispossess serve their gods. On the high mountains, on the hills, and under every green tree. You shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, and burn their wooden images with fire. You shall cut down the carved images of their gods and destroy their names from that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God with such things. Unless, of course, we give them Christian meanings. And then you can continue the Christmas trees. And you know it doesn't say that anywhere, does it? It says what? You shall not worship the Lord your God with such things. Again in Deuteronomy 12, in the very same chapter, verse 31. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. Verse 32, whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it, nor take away from it. So should we say, well, God said remember the Sabbath day, but now we don't want to do that. Messiah was resurrected on a Sunday, so let's make Sunday our Sabbath. That sounds like a good idea, right? We'll take away from God's word and we'll add to it. What did God say? Don't do it. 1 Kings chapter 14. Well, you guys know what happens whenever God says don't do it. 1 Kings 14 verse 23. We'll start in verse 22 for context. Now Judah did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they provoked him to jealousy with their sins, which they committed more than all that their fathers had done. For they also built for themselves high places, sacred pillars, and wooden images on every high hill and under every green tree. So in Deuteronomy 12, in one chapter, God said twice, do not do that. And then they did it. 2 Kings 16.
Second Kings 16, verse 4. Uh, we'll start in verse 3 for context. But he, that's Ahaz, walked in the way of the kings of Israel. Indeed, he made his son pass through the fire. He sacrificed his own son. According to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out from before the children of Israel, and he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places, on the hills, and under every green tree. 2 Kings chapter 17, the key verse is 10, but we'll start in 9. Also the children of Israel secretly did against the Lord their God things that were not right. And they built for themselves high places in all their cities from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves sacred pillars and wooden images on every high hill under every green tree. So every time a king would come and tear them all down, the next generation, they would build them right back. Second Chronicles, chapter 28. Remember, Israel is required every seven years to read the Torah to all the people. Were they doing that? No. Second Chronicles chapter 28, verse 4. We'll start in verse 2 for context. For he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel and made molded images for the Baals. He burned incense in the valley of the son of Hinnom. Where is Gehinnom, the son of Hinnom, the valley of Hinnom? It's in Jerusalem at the foothills of the Temple Mount. And burned his children in the fire. They made idols of Moloch, which is an idol with his arms outstretched and a fire burning in his belly. They would lay the children on the outstretched arms, slit their throats, and push them screaming alive into the fire. Gehinom, Gehenna is where we get the English word hell. God says, remember what you did to those children. That's your eternity. According to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out for the children of Israel, and he sacrificed and burned incense on high places on the hills and under every green tree. Can anybody imagine why God was upset by any of this? Go to Jeremiah chapter 2. Do you think God would view abortion differently? I don't. Jeremiah 2.20. Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 20. In the Hebrew. Where, where we have it translated every green tree, does, it, does the Hebrew really say? The evergreen trees. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
What is it people do every December? They cut down a what? A palm tree? No, an evergreen tree. Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 20. For of old I have broken your yoke and burst your bonds. And you said, I will not transgress. So God forgave them over and over, and they promised we won't do it anymore. When on every high hill and under every green tree you lay down playing the harlot. So while saying, we won't do it again, I promise, they never stopped doing it. They continued the sin. Kind of like everybody's seen somebody cross their fingers. Yeah. yeah. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 6. The Lord said also to me in the days of Josiah the king, have you seen what backsliding Israel has done? She has gone up on every high mountain and under every green tree, and there played the harlot. And I said, after she had done all these things, return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. Judah saw the northern kingdom go into the Assyrian captivity for doing these things. And that was not enough to persuade Judah to stop doing them. Does it break your heart? Does mine. Ezekiel chapter 6, verse 13. Ezekiel chapter 6, verse 13. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when their slain are among their idols all around their altars, on every high hill, on all the mountain tops, under every green tree, and under every thick oak, whatever, wherever they offered sweet incense to all their idols. So I will stretch out my hand against them and make the land desolate. Why did God take them out of the land and into captivity? He gave them opportunity after opportunity to repent. And they would say, we repent, we won't do it anymore. But then they what? Continued in the sin. We have a preacher right here in the Atlanta, Georgia area that's really well known among the evangelical Protestants and many of the churches have followed in line with his doctrine, who teaches in his book that murder is no longer a sin. That the Lord may not like it, but it's not a sin because all the commandments have been abolished. Mm -hmm. So you can live in sin as much as you like and it's not sin anymore. And people are buying this argument. But what does the Bible say? Let's go to Ezekiel 20, verse 47. Ezekiel 20, verse 47. 
and say to the forest of the south, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God. Behold, I will kindle a fire in you, and it shall devour every green tree and every dry tree in you. The blazing flames shall not be quenched, and all faces from the south to the north shall be scorched by it. Does anybody think God is pleased with that kind of worship? Not at all. Sorry, I'm getting a little preachy. But if any of you end up on judgment day hearing, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, it's going to hurt my feelings. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32. Verses 36 to 38. While you're turning there, just think about Revelation chapters 2 and 3. The seven letters to the seven churches. And what does God tell to the churches over and over again? Repent. Never does he say, ah, You've expressed faith in the only begotten Son of God, therefore, you're right on. Continue in sin, no. He says again and again, repent. In Deuteronomy 32, we're at verses 36 to 38. For the Lord will judge his people and have compassion on his, what? Servants. Those who obey him, he will have compassion on. What about those that will not serve him? Hmm. Let's read on. When he sees that their power is gone and that there is no one remaining bond or free, he will say, where are their gods? The rock in which they sought refuge. That's not referring to his servants. That's referring to the rest. The compassion he has on his servants, they're taken in the rapture and the resurrection. Those that remain claim to be his people, but were they really? Or were they on the broad road that leads to destruction? He will say, where are their gods, the rock in which they sought refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering? Let them rise and help you and be your refuge. What did Paul say in Romans 6? Let's go back to Romans 6. Whose servant are you? Romans 6.16 6, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves or servants to obey you are that one's slaves or servants whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. How do you read that and come away saying, God wants us to break his commandments to be saved? That's how we please God. Do you see that in there anywhere? Verse 19, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. 
For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now, now that you've been saved, present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. Is there anything there that says, but continue in your sins for God enjoys it? Nothing. In Ephesians 4.17, you don't have to turn there, you know what it says. Should Gentiles, once they get saved, continue to walk as Gentiles? The answer is no. Back to Isaiah 57. I know I'm getting a little preachy. Sometimes I just can't help it. Verse 6. Among the smooth stones of the stream is your portion. What did they use the stones for back in those days? What's that? Bill Riders, I was thinking more of David and the slingshot to stone people with, to kill people with. They, they are your lot, but they also use them to build idols and idol um, places of worship. Even to them you have poured a drink offering. You've received a grain offering. Should I receive comfort in these? Essentially, if you go back and look, what he's trying to say is, can I relent and not bring judgment upon those who are doing these things? Can God just ignore the idolatry and say, well, well, they, they just, they meant well? The answer is no. Verses 7 and 8 continue the concept of idolatry. They go together, so let's read them together. On the lofty and high mountain, those are the high places. What's that in Hebrew, a high place? It's called a bama. Hmm. No. <laughs> a bama. Actually, that's where the name Alabama comes from, which is kind of creepy. On a lofty and high mountain, you have set your bed. Even there, you went up to offer sacrifice. Set your bed because of the sexual immorality that went with the idolatry. Also behind the doors and their posts, you have set up your remembrance. For you have uncovered yourself to those other than me. And have gone up to them. You've enlarged your bed and made a covenant with them. You have loved their bed where, they, where you saw their nudity. Talking again about the immorality. Let's go to Numbers 25, verses 1 through 18. Numbers 25, verses 1 to 18. The incident of Baal Peor. Remember it? When Balaam wanted to curse the children of Israel and God would not permit it, but he really wanted Balak's money. So he came up with a way. Numbers 25 verses 1 through 18. Now Israel remained in Acacia Grove, and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. Verses 1 and 2 describe two aspects of the same thing. Why did they commit harlotry with the women? Because of the sacrifices of the pagan gods. 
That was the entryway to the prostitutes tents was the sacrifice to the pagan gods. Verse 3, so Israel was joined to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. The Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of the people and hang the offenders before the Lord out in the sun. Again, what did it mean to hang someone back then? Impale them on sticks and let them hang up in the sky so everybody can see that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. In other words, when the rest of Israel looks upon these bodies, they may decide that they need to repent. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, Every one of you kill his men who were joined to Baal of Peor. And indeed, one of the children of Israel came and presented to his brethren a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses, in the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel who were weeping at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Why does he present this Midianite woman? Yeah, you want to worship some desert god that you don't know, or you want to play with this. Verse 7, Now when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose from among the congregation and took a javelin in his hand. He went after the men of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through, which means they were hanged. The men of Israel and the woman threw her body. So the plague was stopped among the children of Israel. Those who died in the plague were 24,000. 24,000 had said we would rather play with the women of Moab than serve the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the children of Israel because he was zealous with my zeal among them, so that I did not consume the children of Israel in my zeal. Therefore say, Behold, I give to him my covenant of peace. It shall be to him and his descendants after him a covenant of an everlasting priesthood, because he was zealous for his God and made atonement for the children of Israel. Now the name of the Israelite who was killed, who was killed with the Midianite woman, was Zimri, the son of Salu, a leader of a father's house among the Simeonites. And the name of the Midianite woman who was killed was Cosby, the daughter of Zur, who was head of the people of a father's house in Midian. Let's now go to Psalm 106, verse 28. Yes, sir. Was that... A re-offering of the covenant, or is that like an addendum? It's the saying that the descendants of Aaron through Phineas will always get to be the priests of God. But it wasn't a complete re-offering of the covenant again? It's not the covenant uh, at Mount Sinai. It's the covenant of the priesthood for the descendants of Aaron. It, it was a re-offering of that covenant, if that's what you're getting at. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Psalm 106, verse 28. They joined themselves also to Baal of Peor and ate sacrifices made to the dead. That word made means offered. So they were sacrificing to dead people, not to God. Like worshiping, like worshiping 
Saints. Yeah. Ooh. You would think that no one would ever do something like this again. However, if we go to Revelation chapter 2. In Revelation 2, we're about 65 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Messiah. That's all. John is still alive. So that whole generation has not passed away. Revelation 2.14. This is to the pastor of the church in Pergamos. Revelation 2.14. But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam. Who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel. To eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. In the church. At Pergamos. 65 years after Messiah's death, burial, and resurrection. There are those teaching people in the church to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Why? Verse 15, thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. The doctrine of the Nicolaitans was that now that Messiah has been crucified, buried, and resurrected, we can live any way we want to. We can live in sin and it's okay. That sounds an awful lot like the church doctrine I was raised in. But you know what? The Bible says that's not right. If you look back at verse 13, it says, you know, these things that are good things, you hold fast my name and don't deny the faith. So they're like claiming faith in him, but then saying on the flip side, you don't keep my commandments. Yeah. For those who couldn't hear him, if any, in verse 13, they were claiming to be God's people. They were claiming he was their God. And yet, how are they living? They're living in sin. Does it sound like Mark chapter 7 and Matthew 15? The people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. What does he mean by the hearts are far from me? They don't love me. If you love me, comma, keep my commandments. So they were already this short a period of time after the foundation of the churches turning away from God's commandments and saying we can live in sin and God will still love us. Is that what your Bible says? Not what mine says. So let's go back to Isaiah 57. We're up to verse 9. In Isaiah 57, verse 9, Isaiah is now going to take a specific view at his time period. Verse 9, you went to the king with ointment. The king being described there is the king of Assyria. God calls the people to repent and put their faith in him. And they go, now we'll continue in our sins and we'll go to the king of Assyria and ask him to protect us. And some of you are looking at me going, they wouldn't really do that, did they? They really did that. Rather than repent, they tried to find another way. 
They went to the king of Assyria and hired him to be their protector. And what did he do? He turned on him. Took the northern kingdom captive. Tried to take the southern kingdom captive. Just like Egypt. Have you noticed throughout the scripture that every time Israel turns to another nation and puts their faith in that nation, that nation lets them down? When they came back as a nation, who did they put their faith and confidence in? The United States of America. How's that working out for them? Not so good. So verse 9, you went to the king with ointment and increased your perfumes. You sent your messengers far off and even descended to Sheol. Meaning what? Meaning the king of Assyria turned on you and destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. Go to Exodus 34, 24. Made a deal with the devil. Yeah, that's kind of exactly what he's getting at. Exodus 34, 24. We're going to start in verse 23, though. And we'll begin to see immediately how Israel went astray. How they got broken down. Three times in a year, all your men shall appear before the Lord, the Lord, the God of Israel. For I will cast out the nations before you and enlarge your borders. Neither will any man covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. But they said, no. We don't want to do that. We'll secure ourselves. We'll send lots of golden offerings to Egypt and they'll protect us. No, they didn't. We'll send all kinds of expensive gifts to the king of Assyria. He'll protect us. No, he didn't. Does God ask so much of us? I hear people today say, yes, too much. I want to have my homosexual relationships and God says no, so I'm not going to follow God. Oh boy. Isaiah 57 verse 10. You are wearied in the length of your way. Yet you did not say there is no hope. You have found the life of your hand, therefore you were not grieved. First read, you read that verse and go, huh? But they were willing to go as far as they needed to go to find a king who would guarantee them peace and security. Does that sound like the false messiah or antichrist who's to come? And when they say peace and safety, then comes sudden destruction. They were never willing to humble themselves but found strength in their idols and in the idol worshipers and the nations around them rather than repent and turn to the Lord our God. Verse 11. And of whom have you been afraid or feared that you have lied? And not remembered me, nor taken it to your heart. 
Is it because I have held my peace from of old that you do not fear me? So his first question here is, and of whom have you been afraid or feared that you've lied? That you've turned from God? Who were you more afraid of than me, God says? Is there any nation, king, or ruler in this world that we should fear more than the Lord? The answer is no. So who made you turn away from God? And then God says at the end of verse 11, maybe it's my fault. Is it because I have held my peace from of old that you do not fear me? He says, is it because I didn't destroy you long ago? Because I've been long-suffering, sending prophet after prophet to call you to repentance, that you got complacent and began to think that God does not care? If the first time you sin in your life, God reached down and just smacked you silly, you might have thought twice before you did it again. But when you get away with sin after sin, you begin to think, well, maybe God doesn't care. He's saying, is that what happened, Israel? You've done this, and I've sent an invasion, and as soon as you said, I'm sorry, I took the invasion away, and you went back to doing what you were doing before? Is it because I didn't destroy you soon enough? Verse 12, I will declare your righteousness and your works, for they will not profit you. Why will their righteousness not profit them? Yeah, because it's self-righteousness, not the righteousness that comes from God. Uh, I will declare your righteousness and your works. Are their works righteous? They are not. They will not profit you. Let's go to Isaiah 64, verse 6. Isaiah 64, verse 6. Yes, Isaiah 64, verse 6. Referring to our self-righteousness, it says, but we are all like an unclean thing. And you guys know what they're referring to by an unclean thing. Like a used minstrel cloth is what they're referring to. And all our righteousness are like filthy rags. We will fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. So how did they get on this path where they think they're righteous and they're not? Who were they listening to? False teachers. Let's go to Hosea 4. We have such tender hearts that we want it to be that if they were taught wrong, that God won't hold them responsible. That God will just hold the false teachers responsible. But is that what happens? Did the false teachers go into captivity and the rest of Israel get to stay in the land? No. Hosea 4. 
We looked at a couple verses earlier, but we want to look at 1 through 10 as a unit. Hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel, for the Lord brings a charge against the inhabitants of the land. That word charge means a legal complaint. If you've ever been arrested and gone to trial on a criminal charge, you realize the first thing they do is read the complaint. Here are the charges against you. These are the charges against Israel. There is no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. No truth means they don't follow the commandments of God. No mercy, what does the scripture say? If you will not forgive others, you will not be forgiven. Or knowledge of God in the land. By swearing and lying, killing and stealing, and committing adultery, they break all restraint with bloodshed upon bloodshed. Therefore, the land will mourn. Why did God send Israel into Egypt and keep them there in captivity until the 430 years were complete? Because the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet complete. God claims one piece of land in all the earth, and that's the land of Israel. And God will not permit those to remain there who blaspheme his name. Verse 3, therefore the land will mourn, and everyone who dwells there will waste away with the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Even the fish of the sea will be taken away. Now let no man contend or rebuke another, for your people are like those who contend with the priest. Meaning what? The priest is supposed to teach the commandments. The people don't want to hear it. Therefore you shall stumble in the day. The prophet also shall stumble with you in the night. And I'll destroy your mother. What mother? Jerusalem. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge. It's not that God didn't teach it. It's that they refused to hear it. I'll also reject you from being priests for me. Because you've forgotten the law of your God. Deuteronomy 8.11 defines what that means, so keep a finger here. Let's go to Deuteronomy 8.11 to make sure we understand what God's saying. Deuteronomy 8.11. Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, is where Messiah quotes in Matthew 4.4, 4, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. In verse 11, that's why we came here. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments, his judgments, and his statutes, which I command you today. Now go back to Hosea 4. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge, because you have forgotten the law of your God. Verse 7, the more they increase, that is, the more the people increase in number, the more they sin against me. I'll change their glory into shame. They eat up the sin of my people. That is, they want it. They're drawn to it. They set their heart, their desire on their iniquity. And it shall be like people like priests. So I'll punish them for their ways and reward them for their deeds. For they shall eat but not have enough. 
They shall commit harlotry, but not increase, because they have ceased obeying the Lord. When does that turn around? In Hosea 6. During the tribulation period, they come to faith. And then in verse 3 of chapter 6, it says, Let us know, let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. So it will change. It will change one day soon. That Israel will say, we don't want any more idolatry. We don't want any more sexual immorality. We want God. And then the world will be a completely different place. Back to Isaiah 57. We're up to verse 13. When you cry out, that is when you cry out in captivity because bondage is horrible. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. God says, I'm not listening. Proverbs 15.8. Keep a finger in Isaiah. Proverbs 15.8. Which comes before Isaiah, doesn't it? Yep. Normally we go to Proverbs 28.9, and we will, but we're going to start with 15.8, because I usually don't go to that one. I want you to know that there's more than one place you can read the same thing. Proverbs 15.8. If you remember the opening chapters of Isaiah, it said that Israel was coming up to the Temple Mount to bring God a lamb, but they stop in the Valley of Hinnom and sacrifice their children on the way up. And they think then when they sacrifice the lamb to God, everything's good. Proverbs 15 verse 8 says, The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but he loves him who follows righteousness. So how does God look upon the sacrifice brought by the ungodly? Like it's an abomination. That word abomination means as if it's sacrificed to an idol, meaning he will not accept it. Proverbs 28.9, you know what that one is. One who turns away his ear from hearing the Torah, even his prayer is an abomination. I often hear people say, yeah, but he will hear the prayer of repentance. The prayer of salvation. But not until they have repented. Not until they stop turning away from the Torah. They turn back to God, then he will hear it. That's the problem I have with the doctrine I was raised in. You walk down the aisle, you repeat after the pastor, he dunks you in a, in a thing of water, and you continue living your sinful old life just like you did before, because that's what God wants. It demonstrates your faith to say, he will save me despite my sin. Where's that in the scripture? Back to Isaiah 57. I'm glad you guys were raised better. Verse 14, And one shall say, Heap it up, heap it up, prepare the way. Take the stumbling block out of the way of my people. Talking about constructing a highway of righteousness for those who want to repent 
and come back to God. How many times does God talk about that highway of righteousness for people who want to repent and come back to God? Let's look first at Isaiah chapter 11, verse 16. Preparing the way of righteousness, God even tells us what that means. It means preach repentance. Isaiah eleven sixteen. There will be a highway for the remnant of his people who will be left from Assyria as it was for Israel in the day that he came up from the land of Egypt. There will be a highway for those coming back to the Lord. Isaiah 19.23 tells us more about that highway. Isaiah 19.23 is about in that day. I wonder what day that is. The day of the Lord. There will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. And the Assyrian will come into Egypt and the Egyptian into Assyria. And the Egyptians will serve, the Egyptians will serve with the Assyrians. Will serve who? The Lord our God. The highway will lead them from the north and from the south to Jerusalem. Still in Isaiah chapter 35 verse 8 we learn more about this highway. Isaiah 35 8. Isaiah 35 verse 8. A highway shall be there and a road, and it should be called the highway of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. But it shall be for others. Whoever walks the road, although a fool, shall not go astray. Highway of holiness. No unclean thing will pass over it. Still in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. Here's how we learn how to prepare that highway. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Who's that written about? John the Baptist. What did John preach in the wilderness? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's how you prepare the way of the Lord, a highway for our God. Isaiah 62.10. Go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, take out the stones, lift up a banner for the peoples. Who is that banner? That's our Messiah, Yeshua. So preaching repentance is to bring people to salvation by faith. The Messiah's completed works. Malachi 3.1. Malachi 
Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Who's that messenger? Again, it's John the Baptist. And the Lord who you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And of course, Matthew 3.3 tells us that John the Baptist is the fulfillment. In Matthew 3.2, he says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, for, because, this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. You do that by preaching what? Repentance. Turn away from your sins and turn back to the Almighty God. When you repent of your sins, what can you do about the sins that you've already committed? Messiah takes those away in his blood because you can't do a thing. But Messiah died to take those away. Now live for him. Back to Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15. For because thus says the, the high and lofty one. Yeah, those words are not exactly right. The word high means the exalted one. And the lofty one means the one that is uplifted, that is uplifted in our prayers. Who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. That word there is kadosh. Kadosh. I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit. To revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Do you want to live with the Lord one day? He will dwell with those who has a contrite and humble spirit. Where did Messiah teach us about that? The Beatitudes. Let's go to Matthew chapter 5. Starting in verse 1. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1. When we started today, we had to turn on the heat. I think shortly we're going to be turning on the air. How about you? Yeah, okay. Verse 1, and seeing the multitudes, he, that is Messiah, went up on a mountain. When he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, which means the humble. Those who are willing to get off their high horse and say, Let's do it God's way, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn that is mourn over the sins that they have committed, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, again the humble, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Not for gold, not for silver, not for precious things, but for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. 
Again, that's what Messiah said. If you will not forgive others, you will not be forgiven. So be merciful to those around you. Blessed are the pure in heart, the tamim, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So is that peacemaker like trying to get Russia to stop attacking Ukraine? Or is this making peace between Jew and Gentile, one in Messiah? Breaking down that middle wall of separation. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Don't forget the word falsely. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So when you preach repentance and they revile you and they mock you and they reject you, yeah, God says, yeah, they did the same to me and all the prophets who are before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men, which means if you give in to the persecution and you say, well, okay, I'm going to hush up. I'm going to let people do what they do, and then God will sort them out later. Then you're no longer the salt. You're the light of the world. A city that's set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. It gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And here's where verse 17 comes in. It's not a new teaching. It's part of the same. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill to fill up the knowledge of. Romans 15, 19 translates the same verb, I have fully preached. Messiah came to fully preach righteousness, whether people accepted it or whether they didn't. And they nailed him to a tree for it. Verse 18 goes on, For as surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. This is in the same discourse. How do you preach repentance if you say the commandments don't exist anymore? What does repentance mean if the commandments don't exist anymore? Verse 19, whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. It's in the, the, the area of exhorting the believers not to quit preaching repentance and righteousness as much as it may be rejected by people as much as they may persecute you as they did the prophets before you. But he who does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. The scribes and the Pharisees' problem was they rejected God's commandments to do the man-made rules and regulations instead because they liked those better. Which is easier, to tell a group of people that they need to repent or that everything is just hunky-dory? And with that, our time has expired. We'll pick up next week, Lord willing, in Isaiah chapter 57, verse 16.